0: You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. As always, before we get started, just a couple of reminders before we get the show underway. Follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. We really want to grow that social media following and continue to make the Hazard Ground community as big as possible. Don't forget to check out our YouTube channel. You can go to youtube.com slash C slash Hazard Ground Podcast. Get all the episodes there as well. We are really growing that YouTube followership, so please be part of that as well. If you guys have sent us an email and haven't heard back from us, please check your spam folder. We do respond to everybody who writes us, good, bad, or indifferent, and we want to make sure that you guys know that we're taking the time to write you back. So check your spam folder. It may have gone there, and for whatever reason, if we haven't gotten back to you, please hit us up again. We'll certainly take the time to respond to all of your questions and thoughts about the podcast in any ways we can make the show better. As well, don't forget to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcast. doesn't have to be a long one. Just a few words about what you like about the show. Hopefully, give us five stars as well, and we'll continue to grow the Hazard Ground community that way. As always, we appreciate you guys being a big part of this show. You're the reason that we do this every single week, and your feedback means the world to us, so please keep it coming. Finally, don't forget about our partnership with Amazon. As always, go to our website, hazardground.com, click on that Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage, or under the sponsors tab, you can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you spend. We'll donate it right back to some of the charities and foundations featured here on the show. And don't forget, on your cell phone, on your smartphone, you can go to hazardground.com there, And click on the Amazon button, it will take you right to your app. So you don't have to worry about putting in your credit card or anything like that. Again, all the stuff that's saved in the app, we can get you right there from your smartphone as well. Now that all that's out of the way, let's get on with this week's episode. Joining us this week is a retired captain who spent a total of five years in the U.S. Army with one deployment overseas to Iraq. He currently writes a blog called Pistols and a Pop-Tart. It is his own attempt to bridge the civil-military divide, and he currently works for the Department of Homeland Security. He is Tim Stolinsky joining us on the Hazard Ground podcast. Tim, welcome, man. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, Tim, so you and I actually uh, met and conversed via Twitter, and, uh, you know, it's how I kind of meet a lot of people who we get on the podcast here, but, you know, I found your story to be a little bit interesting, and certainly your blog uh, has a lot of poignant thoughts as, you know, we sit here recording this here in the beginning of June, and the world seems to be upside down or right side up, depending on who you tell. Uh, The military always seems to be a a co-joining force and all that, so it's a good time to talk to you, and I'm certainly excited to have you on. Uh, With all that said, though, why and how'd you get in the Army?
1: You know, it's, it's, it's funny. I remember I, uh, the commander of one of the eastern regions of um, cadet command asked that from our ROTC classes. I think I was a freshman at the time. I, I, he didn't really like my joke. I just kind of said, I think I watched too much GI Joe growing up. And he kind of got this really nasty look from him. But uh, <laughs> my PMS wasn't too thrilled either. But. <laughs>
0: No, but you were um, you were in ROTC to begin with. You chose to do with that, or were you a scholarship? Yeah, for that?
1: yeah. I, I think I just I grew up like uh, hanging out with my uncle Joel a lot. He was probably the biggest influence on me as a little kid. He um he was on a B seventeen crew during World War II. He was on a top turret, and you know, just I like actually just got all his model planes set up in my office, and I like as a little kid would just marvel at these things, and you know, we talk a lot. He was probably fortunately for me is more open about his war experiences than a lot of guys coming out of world war ii um and i think i just kind of was always on that track from a young age um, you know it's a little bit i guess stereotypical or, or just cliche and i grew up with all those ideals of what patriotism is and you know what the country should be aspiring to and you bought into all that stuff from a very young age um let's see my high school had junior ROTC and that was probably something that got me onto a right track because um, I very nearly failed my freshman year in high school and that changed uh, the course of my time in high school and almost fed into the um ROTC program at St. Bonaventure so um I was fortunate enough to win a three-year scholarship to go there. You know, it's a school that even in the early 2000s was still like a $30,000 tuition.
0: Yeah, I, so, I, I was there. Loyola yeah. wasn't cheap.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I'll say it, I got far through a lot of hard work, but I was very lucky and I had a lot of help along the way.
0: So when did you join ROTC? Year in time.
1: Uh, let's see, that would have been, my freshman year at Bono's was 02 to O three. Okay, so nine so like, eleven had already happened. Nine eleven was my senior year of high school.
0: Okay. Any of that sort of crystallizing for you and, and sort of provide you with more resolute conviction that you wanted to be in the military? Uh,
1: yeah. I mean, it's it, there was no question about where I was going at the time. It was just like a matter of if I get the scholarship, I go to ROTC. If I don't get a scholarship, I'm enlisting. Like, the Army was just the sole focus for 17 year old me
0: parents didn't try to talk you out of it once 9-11 happened
1: no i think they knew what what, what i was gonna do and i mean they're were, they're were proud about it but i could tell there's apprehension they probably didn't think like you know how many of us thought that you know four years after 9-11 we'd still be in wars let alone 20 so yeah right sure
0: so I'm just curious uh, for all of us ROTC warriors out there, uh, any advanced camp stories that I need to know about?
1: <laughs> oh jeez, no, <Nah>, you know <laughs> about the dumbest thing I did. And this was like the only time in my life I ever did it. I I, I kicked a back ass with backwards, and it took me like four times to kind of get it corrected. As my my buddy was the the six line squad leader for that one, he like wanted well, me to do it all his map stuff because he knew I was really good at it, and and sure enough, like the one time I had to actually be on the ball with that. I was like, Oh God, dude, I'm so sorry, Zach, <laughs> but yeah. nothing too crazy from, from that. Um, although let's see, we were all boarding our planes to go back. And this one guy from, uh, I won't say his name out of respect. To I don't know who, but you know, Ohio, he was from Ohio state. I will right, we'll dime them out. Cause that school and Penn state were like the two schools where I met like the worst people from hands down. <laughs> and, uh, He just had to get rip-rowing drunk at the airport bar as we're all waiting for flights. And sure enough, this major in his civilian clothes is just watching this kid the whole time. And he ended up sitting next to me on a flight. Um, It was just absolutely horrible. He's trying to stand up to go to the bathroom while the plane's taking off. And he's falling all over the place. I'm trying to grab every puke bag I can to get it ready and, and luckily put a seat between him and me. That was that was pretty classless and stupid.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, again, uh, sometimes, uh, the military entrusts us with way too much, uh, very early on in our careers. But, uh, again, not a perfect system, but it is what it no,
1: is. No, <laughs> you know, I, I came to be a fan of saying, you know, there's dirt bags in every organization and you, know, you judge that organization by how they, they deal with them.
0: Right. All right. So you get commissioned, uh, and mm-hmm. where are you heading next?
1: Um, after 13 months of TUI, <laughs> um by the time i actually Korea was my first duty station but by the time i finally got there after uh this was the year group or bulk two was really in full swing for like 99 percent of commissionees so i did that benning um bounced over to fort bliss for my obc it's the air defense school still there at the time then back to benning for airborne school and then back up to New York for some hometown recruiting. Like I was all over the place. Finally get to Korea. And when I got there, the 35th brigade, uh, ADA brigade, they had just reorganized so that they no longer had a full brigade PCS. It was just a brigade headquarters with rotating battalions coming from CONUS. So, uh, Colonel Rossi, um, he just looked at me and he was like, I, I, I don't have any MTO slots available for you. I'm going to have to send you to Camp Casey with the Avenger battery that's up there that they had just reflagged to the 210th fires brigade. Um, now I just looked at him and was like, that's cool with me. I'm, you know, I'm thinking inside. Cause I don't want to, the one thing I learned from air defense is you don't badmouth Patriot stuff. <laughs> you do that. You're pretty much toast. Um, so I went up to Casey and I was, I was so happy. I, I wanted to do adventure stuff. I wanted to do shore stuff. Cause you, you know, it was this mentality that got driven into us and ROTC, at least at Bonas was, you know, go combat arms. If you're not combat arms, it's kind of weak. Right. Um, very much old school kind of mentality in that.
0: There. Yeah. Wow. So
1: that was always what was drilling us, you know, me and a couple of my roommates that were commissioned with me, like that was our focus and probably something that over years, we realized that's probably one lesson that we didn't need to learn. Um, but Camp Casey was—it was interesting. It was something where I'd say I loved my weekends and I hated the work week. Um, that would have been 07 to 08. and yeah, you know, there were a lot of people there hiding out from combat. I mean, senior NCOs with fuzzy right shoulders, very out in the open about how they're staying in Korea as long as they could, even. Saying that stuff in front of privates. And it's like, you know, me as this charity second lieutenant, my veins, my brain are bursting in anger over it. But it's like, do I, what do I, how do I respond to this, you know, senior staff sergeant or whatever? It's saying these things. Dude, say it in private, but don't say it in front of the freaking privates at the least. Right. Go be a dirtbag on your own time. Don't create more. So, It was a challenging environment, but it was also, I was fortunate that it was the only Avenger battery in the entire U.S. Army that was attached to, you know, directly attached to a fires brigade in that manner. And that that no longer exists. That that unit um, came back to the U.S., I think, and they re-flagged and probably the best platoon leader opportunities really for an air defense second lieutenant, in my opinion, at least. You know, they got to be I got attached to an MRS battalion for any kind of field problems because they were all focused around, like, the go-to-war plan in the event of, you know, needing to counterattack an invasion. So it was really neat. And the, the rest of the Army is out doing coin, and you're still kind of focused on traditional um, battle tactics, right? You know, conventional warfare and all that kind of stuff. So it was an interesting bubble, and you're also um, – The downside of that was that priorities for things were Iraq, Afghanistan, and then a very distant third, Korea. So it was hard to get, you know, it's hard to have your equipment very well maintained, to say the least.
0: So, how long are you in Korea uh, and how eventually do you get out of there?
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, One year. I was on 12 year rotation. And, you know, there's towards the end of the time there, I was trying to figure out if I wanted to extend or what. And, uh, one of my good friends, Paul Tangy, who is now uh, the PMS at Fordham University, ran their ROTC. Oh, wow. And I talked to him a lot about different things. He was like one of the few people I was able to find there that was a great mentor. Um, and through the conversation, we just kind of figured, hey, if you haven't deployed, you probably shouldn't be extending here. You know, aside from the anger that you felt towards these NCOs, like, you know, it, if your shoulder's fuzzy, go get back in the game. So, you know, for good or bad, you know, there, there are definitely good sides and bad sides to that advice. Uh, that's what I did.
0: So you extend and how quickly? Oh, no, no, no.
1: I, I, I did not extend. I um, went back conus and. Uh, oh, when you say extend, I thought you meant, okay.
0: So uh, yeah. when you said, I yeah. thought you go, meant you would extended...
1: Get back into like the deployable army, basically. Right, okay. I knew that if you're in Korea, you're, you're not non-deployable, but you're not deployable
0: Well, that's, I mean, that's changed, hasn't it? I mean, units from Korea are, are, are deploying now, no, or they have to come, they, they come back stateside and then go.
1: Yeah, it, it seems, I mean, I've tried to keep up a bit because there's a certain amount of affinity towards that. Um, it seems like it's mostly CONUS-based battalions rotating in and out with like permanent, Headquarters elements, but you know, again, that that's the that's how things have changed, I guess, since '07 and 08 All
0: right, so you end up going yeah. back to the quote regular army, as we say. Uh, where are you headed to next after Korea? Uh,
1: it was my first stint then at Fort Hood. uh it Was oh, since, the 69th ADA Brigade, and it was again another really weird time. Um, it, all my assignments, I never spent more than twelve months in anyone's spot. It was kind of, kind of goofy. Five years, um, but so the sixty ninth brigade had been in Germany, and they were during the, uh, as a result of the Brac and all that kind of stuff in the early aughts. Um, the the air defense units you know, that were in Germany were changing as well, and so the permanent headquarters that was there for decades got moved back to um, the U S so they had restationed to Fort hood and stood up at hood, I think two weeks before I got there. So I'm arriving at brigade headquarters and they're at like 20% manning. They had, you know, I think the zero Oh one Oh twos. So they're looking at any kind of Lieutenant and captain that showed up there and trying to gobble them into the brigade headquarters. So here I am, you know, this kid, you know, pretty young first lieutenant, fresh off of being a platoon leader at Camp Casey and being told I'm, I'm going to be in the brigade headquarters. And at first I was at the three shop. That lasted for a few weeks until they realized they needed to, to get the existing brigade adjutant some company commander time. So they're like, Tim, you're going to be the new adj. I'm like, why are you making me the S-1? Right? Because I'm here an adjutant. I'm thinking, adjutant in general, S-1. I'm like, no, no, the brigade action Like I didn't even know what the hell that was. <laughs> <laughs> so so I'm like, um, all right, someone needs to really explain what the hell you want me to do. And um it's probably not the greatest fit for me. I think that was pretty clear from the start, but there was only I think three or four lieutenants at the brigade headquarters. So it was just kind of putting people where the, the brigade commander felt he needed the most.
0: All right, so you get in this position. How quickly from here do you end up getting to a deployment? Uh,
1: let's see. It was about a, f- about a full year on the dot that I was at Hood. Um, I spent like six months or so as an adjutant. Um, and finally, they got some more lieutenants coming in, some fresh bodies. And they're, they're like, okay, Tim, we'll- we'll- <laughs> I think this has been a fun enough experience for everyone. Um, we'll get you an XO slot. So I want to be a battery XO for the Brigade's HHB. Um, the commander for, was well known for not being the greatest. <laughs> um, again, I'm trying to not like drop dimes on everybody here left and right, but I guess <laughs> it was just my experience, <laughs> right? Um, but, it, you know, the guy needed help. He definitely needed an XO. The, and I, the Brigade DCO just looked at me and was like, Tim – you're, we're going to gift you this because you've been asking for it and uh, we go fix the supply system and the maintenance program. That's pretty much my, my big two tasks and you know, in four months I was able to take uh, batteries equipped motor pool with like 12 vehicles being deadlined to just one which you know was waiting on like a brand new engine block from Big Army. Nothing much to be able to do about that and the real interesting thing though is that you know, talking to the supply sergeant, you know, for, my first week or so on the job, I, he told me that the battery commander hadn't done any hundred percent inventories before leaving Germany or since they arrived at Fort Hood. And this is like maybe, you know, six, seven months after the big move. <laughs> like my, again, my, my brain's like going to explode. The only time in my life I ever had high blood pressure was the four months I was on that job. Um so I had to figure out you a know, professional way to get the information, uh, I guess, to brigade without completely dropping dimes on my new boss because like, I couldn't just sit on this. Um, fortunately, while I was at the brigade staff, I made friends with pretty much everybody else that was there, and I just wouldn't talk to the PBO about it. And we found a reasonable way to make sure 100% of inventory would was ordered so that that could get kind of sorted out. But when well, eventually, though, when I came back from from my deployment, I came back to the same unit, right? And, and like one of the first things people wanted to talk to me about was, "Oh, did you hear about Captain so and so?" They're like, well, "What?" Like, "Oh, when he was leaving and he was doing the transition inventories it, he, he lost seven hundred fifty thousand dollars off his property book." <laughs> like, I just I couldn't believe it. But at, I guess I had a very strange pathway in the army i guess and i just kind of i didn't stumble onto too many very exceptional people i just seemed to keep running into a lot of bumbling people and mm-hmm. i got jaded pretty quickly
0: when do you get to iraq uh
1: that would have been so i left i tried to um put in a packet for uh civil affairs uh while i was still at Fort Hood, and I tried to even go on deployment with Third Brigade out of First there. Well, I was going through this packet. Um, I was looking for civil affairs officers at, at Hood, and there was only one at any brigade. That
0: was why civil affairs, underway. by the way.
1: Um, you know that
0: I mean. I know there was a lot I of think them. Think that was at just that point in time. really,
1: yeah. Their mission kind of just was something I was drawn to, like, it, and it seemed to really fit well with what we were trying to do as an army, right?
0: Hearts and minds, baby.
1: Yeah, you know, they're exactly hearts and minds. You know, you're you're doing the the gritty, unglamorous work of building up local populations, and you're doing all that soft power type of stuff that is the real backbone behind coin. That you know, I, that was what I was drawn to. That's the kind of stuff I wanted to do. I didn't want to be an air defense officer. <laughs> I knew that pretty quickly. Um, you know, I had a. I tried to do a branch transfer while I was still in Korea and that, that failed. So the civil affairs thing was like my second chance to try to get out. And I got that rejection letter my birthday. So my next plan was to try to get on a mid team. And so I talked to the branch manager and managed to get onto the second to last cohort of Mid teams that were being trained up at Fort Riley. So Jonah uh, 09, go to Fort Riley for the, uh, the mid school, which is about 90 days. Um, pretty interesting experience. I tell you Fort Riley, definitely a hidden gem. I, I, I really liked it there. Um, Manhattan was a cool place. I ended up getting married in Manhattan. Um, but someone had goofed up our travel orders and a little typo. They dropped a one. So we should have been leaving on September 19th. We ended up leaving on September 9th instead. So, a whole cohort from the schoolhouse there we didn't really get a whole lot of leave time before our deployment. Um, that was kind of a hectic time to say the least, but then we get, we ended up touching down Kuwait city, uh, on September 11th, 2009. Um, so, kind of an odd thing. I like, you know, it, it, that date just kind of delineates my, my life in a lot of ways. So, yeah, I'm sure. starting to come of age, becoming an adult on the day of the attacks, and, you know, just pure coincidence. And I actually, you know... You get there on the same day, yeah. 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 So,
0: so when you get there, what is your mission? What are you told? Uh, where actually are you
1: going in Iraq? So uh, our class of, of, of MIT guys, we were um, pretty much all made border transition team so we were getting paired up with Iraqi border police I think all of us except for one team went to Basra and you know we bounced around a couple weeks in Kuwait to get some more driver training on the MRAPs which were new. we were getting Caymans when we got to our final destination so that was cool um nothing to worry about there except rolling over in EFPs so felt pretty comfortable with that I guess um couple of weeks messing around at camp taji with some more language training another garbage that was just Mm -hmm. i mean we had some cultural awareness training which amounted to having like a fake hookah cafe set up there at taji where you'd go and you know the u.s army was paying former iraqi colonels and stuff to basically just hang out at this hookah cafe and talk to us which was neat you got to if you bothered to put the time in just go sit there Kick back, smoke a, a little bit of a hookah, and talk to these guys. You know, they would be very honest with you about what they expected to happen in Iraq, and they would flat out say, "Yeah, we're very, we very much hope that, you know, the plan of nation building, that bringing democracy to Iraq, is something that happens." But uh, I really don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> you know, those, those guys knew what was going to happen. They absolutely knew how everything was going to unravel. Um, but eventually we get down to Basra and my team was the only one out of our cohort that ended up living remotely. So we weren't on Fab Cobb Basra. We were at this little place called Camp Savage, which was actually co-located on this weird Iraqi army base that used to be an Iraqi air force base. So down the middle was the, the airstrip. You had all the old hardened aircraft hangars that we bombed out in 91, still there all rubble i think we went down to them to fill up sandbags (laughs) interesting place to just really be out you know know, just dangling in the wind kind of thing but i don't know how well known it was that there were americans on this spot so we were probably safer there than on the cop like we didn't get any indirect you know we were safe we our partner unit had their own little compound Within this IA base, we were partnered up initially with the area Border Patrol or Border Police Academy for, I think there were four areas that the Iraqi Border Police divided the country into, so we were area four. Uh, We eventually picked up a second unit to mentor. They were Border Police Commandos. It was kind of like a SWAT team for Border Police. Um, and, And that was really interesting. Not too long after we picked them up, the Iranians decided they wanted to start something, and they just sent some Iranian army unit a few miles over the border to basically say, uh, like an indisputed area where there were some oil fields. They're like, "Nope, these are our oil fields. We're putting our army guys, you know, around it. What are you going to do about it?" So, there, our border police commandos were the ones that were scrambled to go and set up OPs and it was like a Mexican standoff. We were, I, Iraqis and Iranians just establishing their OPs, watching each other while the politicians worked it out. So.
0: So as you're doing this, you know, I mean, are you starting to feel like the goal of winning hearts and minds and, you know, the, the actual purpose of the mid team is working?
1: Uh, I guess yes and no. And you know, we, there were, elections going on while we were there um i think it was when maliki won re-election and like the, the it wasn't the first democratic election but it was like the first where that was very widespread or very well you know had a lot of turnout something like that and you're like okay this actually is kind of going along there I mean, maybe we're going to pull this through you know or post-surge it seemed like things were dying down and you know at the very least that we were going to be able to transition everything over. And while there might still be some violence and things weren't going to be perfect, it wasn't going to completely melt down, but you know, we also had the shooting at Fort hood. Um, yeah. At that time, I can remember sitting in our little talk. It was just like a couple of, uh, shoes put together. Um, everything in The hell, I feel safer here right now than I would have at Fort Hood. (laughs) Right. It was it was a very surreal experience there. So, uh, it it was very strange. Like, uh, yeah, I wrote something about it. Um, my my summer writing kind of takes a down turn because I'm, you know, I'm trying to use like the three good months we have up here in Buffalo to scramble and do all my housework and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, my extra free time. Doesn't get to get really uh, go towards writing a whole lot, but the last thing I wrote was about how it really felt like just being a spectator. You know, like, like you really, I know I'm in this war, I know there's a war going on, but I, we're not in it, we're not shooting. The one time any of us fired our weapons on any of our bounty patrols, I, I was on my two weeks of r and when I got back, it was a big joke that I was hear about from some of the other teams that, uh, one of our gunners who, you know, he didn't sleep very well, had some back issues. So he was always, you know, I had like a lot of pretty strong painkillers all the time and didn't quite know if he should be on the machine gun all the time, but, but he was our gunner, um, uh, when they're driving, because the team was driving back from the cob on a resupply mission and we're going through this one spot where there was some, and tell about snipers in like a little tiny little building, maybe a few hundred meters off the road, driven by it so many times, it was nothing. But guy swore he heard a bullet go by his head. You know, I mean, think about that. Guy is on a turret on a Cayman going like 50 miles down the road. He says he hears a single bullet go by his head. Like, sure, you know, but he lit up a few bursts on this thing and then got back and was trying to fill out the paperwork to get a, a combat action ribbon. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. I, I, know I understand that. what's going on here. Like, I'm, I'm glad I was on my leave for that. Cause I just, it sounded like a giant mess. And like I said, it's one of the things that the other teams, when they heard about it, they were just kind of joking on us for but good dude. That, that that guy, he was a really good dude, that gunner. Um, and just, I don't know takes all sorts i guess And we had you know these mint teams were definitely motley cruz you had uh, you know it was kind of typical and and the makeup of it you had like a couple guys with a ton of deployment experience under their belts and a bunch of senior ncos and a team leader on their first deployment and it was one of those catch-all kind of assignments at the army was like let's find out these people that haven't deployed yet make sure they go and do something you know then you had weird people you know like like me and a couple other guys on the team that you know i guess we were true believers we thought that this was the thing that we should be doing you know to do our part and i don't know for a lot of it it, it did seem like we were just wasting our lives sitting there uh, and you know doing fuck all we go out mentor these what what are we gonna do we're gonna mentor the this border patrol academy their cadre these guys that are like all iraqi colonels that were in the army before i was born mm-hmm. you know like we, we knew the game it was go have some chai make friends with these guys you know and the, the iraqi colonel that i was supposedly mentoring he was a great dude he show me videos of his kids and stuff and you know from time to time i still wonder about that guy and, and how he's doing if he's still alive if his kids have been able to manage to grow up and with some kind of normalcy, you know, to know some kind of peace, uh, God, I hope so. <laughs> you know, Cause they're good people. You know, yeah. It's odd, but like one thing the army taught me is people are people. We, we all just want one thing and it usually boils down to security. You know, we want to have physical security. We want to have shelter. We want to have food we want to have financial security and just be left to hell alone to live our lives in peace. You know, it doesn't matter what country you're from, what culture you grew up in. That's that's what 95% of us want.
0: I, I always often wonder the same thing, the Iraqis I worked with. I, I wonder just where they are now. I think about it all the time. You know, are they alive? Did they survive? Did their family survive? Like, what is their position in life? Is it any better? Is it any worse? I mean, how, how does any of this any of the work that we did together, you know, where we bled together and sweat together and everything, does that, is that still part of their lives? You know, I mean, it's, it's just a, and I'll never get the answer to it. You know, I mean, it'd be great to have it, but I I doubt I'll ever find out the answer to where the people I served with over there and the Iraqis I trained with side by side every single day, uh, how they're doing and what their lives are
1: like. Yeah. I mean, I've I've listened to some of the past episodes and I can tell it's just that's a question that's been on your mind too. And it's really odd juxtaposition with like Vietnam vets, right? Because a lot of them did get some of that kind of closure and you know, they got to meet some of the Vietnamese officers they fought against or fought with depending on, you know, how everything shook out. You know, they got to see 50 years later, the Vietnam is kind of prospering now and we're friends. As <laughs> like, screwed up as that seems and as, Hard as it would have been to believe, you know, in the 80s and 90s, that's where we're at. And I sit and I wonder what is Iraq going to look like in 2040? You know, I I don't even think about that for Afghanistan. Afghanistan is going to be Afghanistan forever. (laughs) It's just, it's a culture that is just so different from ours. You can't go in and force a traditional nation state kind of Structure, because you just because that's what you think everybody should be like. Afghanistan is just what it's going to be. But Iraq, it's been so many different things in the last century, and you know whether or not it's going to be a place that we can go as tourists in in thirty or forty years time. uh, It's hard to see that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And it's the other thing that kind of I think weighs on a lot of us. You know, a lot of Iraq veterans is you've got that moral injury, like you participated in this war, whether or not you pulled the trigger, whether or not, you know, you accidentally shot some kid or whether or not you, you know, went there and did everything absolutely perfect or whether you're one of the dudes that thought drop guns was an awesome idea. Like we all share some guilt in that. And, you know, I I think it's something that all of us, We'll have to kind of sort out our own time. You know, when people say war never leaves you, well, that's what it comes down to. It might not be something ever present on your mind. It might not be something you even think about for, you know, after you've left. And 30 years later, you're like, shit, I wonder what happened to all those people that I interacted with, you know. Did we do something that was really a force for good or did we just go and completely fuck everything up? I, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, tough to tell the answer. So uh, how does I rack in for
1: you? I I think that's something I'm still trying to figure out. You know, when I write, it's partly therapy for myself. You know, know. I mean, you know, I'm pretty open about it. I deal with depression, um, and I I maintain monthly therapy sessions. I, I would encourage anybody to go and do that, you know, whether or not you feel like you have a mental... Health problem or not, like I think more people benefit if everybody got uh, had at least one encounter with a therapist and got to understand what that's like and did a little bit more self discovery. But you know, aside from trying to bridge a civil military divide with this writing, it's it's you know something that is very therapeutic to me, and I get to kind of learn myself a little bit more through it.
0: Sure. But how does it, I mean, I was referencing, and it's great to hear that, but I was referencing actually how, did, when do you leave Iraq and how does the actual deployment
1: oh. end? <laughs> Got a little bit too mad at no, that. No, no, <laughs> I mean, listen, it, it,
0: it's part of what we're going to go into, so I don't mind you bringing it up, obviously, but I was just curious how, you know, it ends and what's next in in your career.
1: Sure. Um, you know, that, that all wrapped up. Um, I actually, my tour ended on a compassionate reassignment, Um I tend to not talk about that very much just because it isn't just my own privacy. Sure. So, um, but that wrapped up. And so I was back at hood in April, officially reassigned to back to 16th brigade in May of 2010. Um, my teammates, I think they were only in Iraq for another two and a half or so months. And most of it was just sitting around doing inventories on our, our equipments. Um, so, I've never really had too many hang ups about leaving early, like some guys justifiably understand they do, but our mission was pretty much done anyway. So, you know, I had to get back home, I had to take you know, your family's gotta come first, so took care of that. Um, I knew I was kind of in the home stretch, and I, I put in my packet to resign my commission, um, not too long after getting back to Fort Hood. Um, that was kind of a wild assignment, though. I, I was coming in again thinking I was going to get some Brigade S3 time, you know, because for one thing, that's a great place to hide out officers who are checking out. <laughs> you know, um, I did my introduction interview with the Brigade DCO, who was in his last couple weeks on the gig himself. And then he was wrapping up and all of a sudden he looked at me and said, Tim, so you're getting out here and everything. Um, I don't know the perfect job for you, you're going to be my budget guy. What the hell just happened? Did you not hear the part where I said I was a history major? Never had a business class in my life, man. (laughs) And you're going to tell me I'm going to run your budget and all your money stuff? Because what? I I was a contracting officer representative as an additional duty in Iraq. That's pretty much how it shaped out. So (laughs) that was uh, quite a smack in the face. I was going out the door for my interview there. And um, I had to learn... Pretty much everything about um, fiscal policy, uh, you know, stuff like Anti-Deficiency Act, uh, pretty much everything dealing with money from a federal perspective, you know, whether it's managing your unit's budget or the contracting, taking care of government credit cards and all that kind of stuff. Oh, by the way, the brigade, this is the same brigade I was you know, with from when they stood up originally at Hood, they never had that assigned to anybody as like a, their actual full time job. It was always kind of like an additional side that they had, um, like a warrant officer doing. So uh, they also didn't have a very great working relationship with the uh, three corps G eight. Um, the brigade itself fell directly under Third Corps at Fort Hood, so. I was going to three core headquarters multiple times a week, hat in hand, trying to talk to um, G8 just to kind of like, um, I know nothing. Can you please teach me? <laughs> you know, and I I, th- I think having the empty vessel that was my brain at that point kind of thrilled our our, um, our budget officer at the G8 because she was like, oh, someone who's going to listen to me and I can teach, and. I'll be damned if that didn't start like an actual good working relationship. Finally, so if, if nothing else, I was able to gift the brigade a good relationship with three Corps G8. And at, at the time, our, our, our budget officer was this lady Penny Payne, who we all knew as Penny D Payne. And you know, the, the brigade headquarters kind of joke about how they never get anything they wanted. They never. able to get purchase requests through and this lady was always just a a roadblock and no it was just nobody at the unit ever wanted to listen and follow the freaking regulations so just sitting down and you know kind of using my key leader engagement training from the uh the mitt team stuff i just talked to this lady got to know her and like hey i don't want to screw this stuff up because i I'm not going to be responsible for messing up the brigade's budget. I'm not going to have that on me. So just keep me clear, keep, keep, keep me uh, on an honest and narrow path. And that was pretty good from there. Um, interesting. I ended up loving that job. I never thought I would have had a good time doing that, you know, as I walked out of my introduction interview, but um, it was pretty neat. And my eventual boss at the brigade gave me a lot of leeway and empowered me to just kind of honestly get the brigades money affairs in order. Mm -hmm.
0: And yes. So even after all this, you decide that, uh, 2011, you're going to end your military career. Why?
1: Uh, you know, there are a lot of reasons. It kind of sounds like a, just a giant bitch list in a lot of ways, but yeah, I think I knew, early on that I didn't want to be an air defense officer. I tried to go into it with an open mind and it was just, I couldn't, I, I knew as a captain, I didn't, I wanted nothing to do with being a Patriot battery commander. And it just wasn't for me. Um, I did what I could to kind of respectfully break ties with air defense, but uh, that never happened. Uh, Like I said, if you, don't have a good opinion of Patriot stuff in that world, you, you just get trashed. And, and, you know, you say any kind of critical word, whether it be justified or not, and you're, you're blackballed. So, uh, you know, there was, didn't seem to be a path forward for me for one thing, you know, years later with a little bit better mentorship, maybe I could have seen the way like, I have a friend who's now an actor who kind of just, uh, grinned and bore the pain. And when he was able to go to functionality, he went to become a, an acquisitions officer and, you know, talking, I was like, man, that could have been a cool career path, but whatever, you know, um, for me, the right decision, maybe not the greatest time in the world in 2011 to, to, you know, make a career change. But, uh, that's what I did. And, you know, things have worked out pretty decently into this point. Although, you know, the first f- five years or so after the Army, it was a big struggle.
0: So after you get out, uh, you know, you mentioned before that you started writing um, your blog, as we mentioned earlier, uh, Pop-Tarts and a Pistol, uh, you know, and your hope to sort of bridge this civil-military divide. How did you come up with this? I mean, did it just organically sort of end up being that? Or was there some sort of pointed reason behind it?
1: Oh, um, you know, for my first three years post-Army, I, was, I was going through grad school. I did an MBA program um, back at Bonaventure. Venture. And blogs were kind of really key, uh, niche at the time. And um, I always told myself as kind of like an academic exercise between semesters, I was going to do a blog just to kind of learn it. And I never did. I just never got to it. I was always so burnt out at the end of the semester because I was working full time and going to school full time. And like I said, I never took a business class before. So tried to do an MBA from being an issue major, it got sucked. <laughs> Wouldn't recommend it. Um So finally after grad school was done, I, was, I had more time and I started just writing a little bit here and there. Like I had a couple pieces I sent to Doctrine Man and they put them up and I was getting more comfortable with doing this, getting a little bit more confidence in my ability to write something that wasn't complete trash. Um You know, so... I kind of think some of the things are right in my blog are just garbage it sound good to me, but probably nobody else but uh you know one of the things I failed on was trying to start um, a nonprofit called Band of Bards with a couple of my friends and what we were trying to do with that was take oral histories from veterans and turn them into graphic novels that we could publish online um it was just way too big of a lift for the few of us because a couple of us were in Western New York, but not like super close. Another guy was in Kentucky. Um, we just didn't have enough us to, to get all these things together. But the spirit of that kind of transformed into what I do with the blog. And still what we're trying to do is bridge that gap in our society between the civilian and the military cultures. Which have just become so separate from each other ever since all volunteer force was formed, and just trying to put it into an easily digestible, easy to access medium. You know, graphic novels are pretty easy to get to. Um, you know, pretty accessible kind of thing, especially if you're doing them electronically online. Um, but they are also a hell of a lot of work to put together. But You know, I I can put together my story at the very least and put that out there. You know, I think one very valuable thing to take to America as a broader society is that most of us that serve, we don't have these Hollywood stories. We, We don't, you know, we're not trigger pullers. We're not people that go out and do great things in battle. You know, you should even question whether or not what you do in battle is great. Yeah, but this is the monotony of of military service. And it's just as important to understand that and important to understand the different people that are drawn to military service, why they are drawn to it, you know, as anybody else. You know, you've got that... Again, I don't want to come out here and rag on people, but you've got that vet bro section mm-hmm. that does a great job of drawing attention to themselves. And I think skews the image because there's so much media attention towards that good or bad you know you know i'll I'll remain indifferent on that right now but that is a perception that's out there and it's very widely held you know from people from all political spectrums and backgrounds and whatever but you need other stories to get out there and balance all that stuff out and let the public know hey the military is serving you is very diverse. There are a lot of different factions within it. and There are some ill factions within it as well, but it's mostly great people who are trying to do something to improve their lives, and they also want to serve you, the American taxpayer. And, you know, today, July 2nd, we we're waking up to news of chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff surveying the battle space of Washington, D.C., Yeah, I think these kinds of stories are needed now more than ever.
0: Well, and part of that is, too, uh, as you talk a lot about bridging the civil military divide and, and, you know, again, we record this thing in the beginning of June as you start to see National Guardsmen and the threat of uh, of, you know, active duty troops being called in to quell some of the, the the protests around the country, you know, it. It's just the appearance of the military that automatically puts people in a, in a frame of mind of what we do and who we are and how we go about what we do. And mm-hmm. that's just, you know, not the case. It, it is not a reality um, that because people in camouflage show up that all of a sudden they are there to do some of the worst things ma- imaginable. I mean, it's just a, it's a very weird spot to be in at times.
1: Absolutely. You know, you know, the, the sergeant that's out there trying to keep, their team together and do the right things and just get their mission done and go back to regular life for themselves. That's that's the human story down there at that stage. Rayo. The person at the very bottom who's also at the front of everything making the direct contact with, with the public. You know, They're the ones who are most at risk and not the people at the very top who they're going to do whatever they're going to do. And they're completely different things. It's not just, just this big monolith in, in camouflage. Uh, I don't think very many folks understand that. And that kind of contributes to you know the chaos that you'll see going on now. Because so many folks in America don't understand the military that they pay for. Mm-hmm. So, all right. There's so many different facets to what drives this divide. Um, I think Jim Golby does some really great work on on sparing, parsing all that stuff apart. But he can talk about how such a small percentage of the American public serves in the military or even smaller percentage that's served in war or this percentage that has, you know, an immediate family member that's served and, you know, you break all those things down, it just comes to a smaller and smaller f- faction of the country who understands what the military is supposed to be, uh, you know, what our, our ideals are, what, what we're supposed to be doing on behalf of the American public. Mm-hmm. And then you've got, you know, hundreds of times many people going out trying to spin their own agenda and story about w- what it means, you know. Uh, there's just a lot of a lot of ambiguity out there and if more of us were to put our own stories down and put them out there for folks maybe we could cut through the bullshit and make sure you you know we all as one society understood Mm -hmm. you know you you pay for these incredibly well-trained and yes incredibly dangerous people to be out there but that there's a lot that goes into that mix of people and you shouldn't be afraid of them. You sh- you shouldn't do hero worshiping stuff either because we are just regular people that are fallible. Um, yeah.
0: Well, there's, there's two things there. One humble brag, you know, that's the purpose of this podcast is to tell those stories, right? Like it, it's to get people to, to know each individual person on a personal level and who they are and where they come from and what they did and how they survived it. And, you know, sort of humanize the idea of being a soldier, an airman, a marines, a sailor, whatever it may be. Um, And to the other point of the the hero worship, you know, there is a, because such a small number of people put on a uniform and even less of those actually see combat, um, there is a sense of, and, and watching the toll of war for 20 years, there is a sense of almost guilt by the civilian side that they didn't do enough, that they didn't do their part, that somebody stepped up instead of them to do a job that they didn't want to do and that guilt is transferred into hero worship oh we must you know applaud the military and we must be thankful and we must show them gratitude and we must do all these things when in reality you know it's it's one part of the american pie right it's it's one part of of the the american condition that is the military and we choose to do this just like somebody else chooses to be a lawyer or a judge or a police officer or a teacher Right. They're also part of the American, uh, you know, condition and and, and that slice of pie. Uh, You could argue that one job is more dangerous than the other. Some of you could even argue that one is more important than the other. But at the end of the day, it's all part of the same group of people that ideally we want to make our country great.
1: Absolutely. Um, i I, trying to keep myself from just kind of going on rambling tirades here with this stuff because it does drive me nuts. You know, I I think guilt drives a lot of Actions in our country, mm-hmm. you know, and giving, and what I've recognized from just you know getting out and being a civilian myself now, is that there are most people that have carried that guilt or you know under a lot of people understand that they need to do more or they need to do something different than just put a stupid yellow ribbon magnet on their minivan, but they're not sure what to do, so. You know, if we as vets and folks on active duty and everything else want, you know, you don't want to just sit around and bitch about how people don't understand you and they don't get you and, and they're all different. You know, put your story on the paper. Be the person to take initiative and bridge that gap yourself and tell, you know, let, be approachable. Put something out there that's accessible because people want to know more. They want to better understand you. But They're not sure how to. So some of us need to step up and start putting our stories down, whether you got a great story or you got a mundane story, you know, whether you think you did something great or you think you just did whatever and you collected a paycheck. It doesn't freaking matter. There's so many folks that make up the military, and your stories are important. They need to be out there so that the public understands who we all are.
0: Tim, you also work for the Department of Homeland Security. I'm just curious how that came about.
1: Um, well, I, I guess and now i got to throw in the standard disclaimer that anything I say is uh, my own opinion. It <laughs> does not reflect my agency. Right, my exactly. Partner, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, I, I usually skirt that stuff, you know, just out of um, a little bit of favor, a little bit of anonymity. But, uh, no, I, you know, it was a job that came up. Um, I don't do anything – law enforcement related. I don't do anything super sexy. I pretty much stare at spreadsheets and nothing that does a whole lot of security type stuff. Um, but I, you know, I worked for M&T bank briefly. I worked at a, a local winery. Um, none of that stuff was like a, a start to a career. It was, they were good jobs to have when I went to grad school or at least the winery was, um, M&T bank sucks. I hate them still. So. it was just an absolutely terrible experience especially for for being a first job out out of the army um but what i can say is that you get so many vets in the federal government because the federal government is one of the few employers i've come across that genuinely does value what you bring to the company you know a lot of corporations out there say it till they're blue in the face but when you get down there and you're doing your interview, they don't give a shit. They just don't. And, it, you know, part of that could be because I'm in Western New York and yeah, it's not the most economically vibrant place, but you know, it's also a place where you don't have a whole ton of military officers. So you think that that would stand out, but it, it, it really didn't. Um, and I guess that, again, could be my jaded perspective, but you know, federal government was a good place to go to work. And what I did learn about myself is that being employed in private industry just didn't give me any kind of fulfillment. I need to do sure. something public service related, um, you know, and my job is okay for that. Um, this I'm just coming up to my like one year mark of, of being a volunteer firefighter. Um, that. Has probably given me the greatest sense of satisfaction uh, of anything since wearing, you know, the camouflage uniform. Traded that in for a different type of uniform now, I guess. Um, but it's just, I don't know. It's something that I, I couldn't shake. I, I have to do something that I feel is a very valuable and good use of my life, and you know, that could be some of the Franciscan stuff <laughs> that. From that is just ingrained in me you know if you're not using some of your time on this earth to serve other people to serve an interest above your own you know above yourself and above your own wallet go out there and improve your community go out there and do something to help each other it's a waste of life
0: to that end uh, you did write about how well, one of your fellow platoon mates uh, took his own life, and uh, the impact that had on you. Would you mind sharing some of that?
1: Sure. Uh, yeah. So, a soldier and my battery in Korea. Um. I like, guess I didn't know the kid super well. He wasn't. Uh, he wasn't one of mine. Um, he was in one of the other platoons. But. Um, yeah, know him well enough that when I saw the news. It, it hit pretty bad. Like, I don't. You know the particulars of his death it seems like it might have been like an accidental overdose um but you know what stuck out to me I guess is that he was out there feeling alone after he got out and you know whatever he turned to to try to fill the, the void to fill the pain that he felt it, it ended up killing him and we don't do a very great job about talking about mental health. You know, it's a lot of platitudes, um, a lot of bullet points from a PowerPoint slide that we all can memorize. But we get very uncomfortable when we start talking to each other about, hey, really what's going on in your head? You know, what's going on in your life? Do you have something to wake up for and look forward to every day or are you waking up thinking damn it (laughs) i woke up yeah you know you know all the push-up challenges in the world aren't going to address that we need to just be able to talk like adults and not make stupid jokes about each other because you're feeling weak or because you're feeling like you're worthless you know don't cover that stuff up with, with crappy jokes. Be upfront about it. Um, you know, reach out to get some real help and understand that you know, going into therapy, going and checking in with a, a doctor, or just being honest with a friend—it's not. It certainly isn't weakness. It takes a lot of guts to go and do that because it's very difficult and it's very uncomfortable. At, when you start, um, you know, you're very scared. About whether or not someone's going to find out and think that you're some kind of weirdo, or again, think that you're the stereotypical vet from the movie that is some kind of psychotic danger to everybody, you know, because we all got PTSD and we're all just taking time bombs. You know, another great trope that doesn't really help anybody. But uh, I, I really wish more of us, whether you feel like you're in trouble or not. Go and see what therapy is like because you, it's much more about getting some emotional healing than it is about having to parse out any kind of complicated mental illness. It doesn't, you know, I don't, fortunately, I don't re- need to take any kind of um, prescriptions, you know, because there's some pretty crappy side effects from that stuff. And, you know, talk therapy is, is enough to kind of help me keep my head straight and the keep my perspective in a healthy one, but, uh, go out and, you know, there's a lot of resources out there for vets. that absolutely are. Um, I'm fortunate enough to go to the, the vet center in Buffalo here. So it's affiliated with the VA, but it isn't like a VA facility. It's kind of a weird gray area. Um, but you know, get help. Don't, don't sit there and try to internalize everything because it just, Eventually, it eats you up, and whether it kills you or not, it will destroy your life.
0: No, nah, perfectly said well tim listen I I, I I think we interview a lot of folks on this podcast who have uh, some grand stories to tell and have been through some you know sort of defining traumatic experiences, and your experience, well, different than those, I still think delivers home a heartfelt message and one that needs to be said on several different levels. And from that standpoint, you know, it's just a, it's great. And it's refreshing to hear that even though, uh, you know, you didn't uh, have to deal with some of the other stuff that people dealt with that you still bring a, a sense of that same sort of passion for, you know, soldiers lives and the quality of them and, and all those things, you know, I mean, it's just, I'm not comparing you to anybody else, but I'm never amazed at, regardless of the experience that people have how the, in the military, how they all sort of end up at the same spot.
1: Uh, That's very kind. of appreciate so it. I'm just an everyday normal guy, you know, being in the army was part of my life story, but it's not the entire life story. And those, I think, are, those are stories that are just as important as any others to be told and for people to understand. So I, I really appreciate you bringing me on. I, I, I couldn't believe it when he reached out to me. I was like, what the hell does this guy want to talk to me for?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, because that's the point of this. Everybody has a story. Yeah. And, and like I said, uh, it doesn't matter. You know, I, I remember that one of my favorite stories we've told on this was just an E4 specialist who she did her four years and got out and went through her deployment. But just hearing her talk, it was almost – more real and more authentic than some general officers we've talked to, you know, it's then her experience was so much more down to earth than some of the most famous stories we've told on this podcast. So again, I'm never surprised by the perspective that people bring. And, uh, it, it, it isn't coincidence that we all sort of end up back in the same spot because that's part of the bonds of this, this life of service that we chose, no matter how long it lasted, but this life of service in a uniform that we chose not only to each other, but to our country.
1: You know, you said it perfectly, the E4s are the realest people out there. They're, uh, <laughs> they're going to give you the honest story no matter what. And uh, I don't know. I was always a lot more comfortable hanging out with them or kicking it with my platoon sergeant in the Connex than, than anything else. Wow.
0: Well, listen, we're wishing nothing but the best. Stay healthy, stay safe. And uh, Tim Stelinski, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground.
1: Thank you, Mark. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast
0: hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you
1: next time.